you heard some of the great insights from guests on Gangry the Podcast? Insights like... I've never had an editor throw an idea at me to write anything before. I always ask myself with yeah, stories, normally, and, and I, I had the same going question. through Nabokov's archives. It has a question mark in my Imagine head I'm on your shoulder time. and that you're wearing a GoPro. Here is uh, carefully and Every single meticulously. about the whole Bundy story was just so interesting. It was a really weird one to write because every time I tried to write a viral sensation, right? Like, it was the story. You cannot, you cannot do these stories or how we, uh, how we understand the world. They're how we share our experiences. Believe it or not, Gangry the Podcast is now in its ninth year. In all that time, the best narrative journalists have told us how they report and write their stories. You can still listen to every single episode. They're on our website, along with links to all of the stories and books that we've talked about. You can find it all at gangrythepodcast.com. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, thepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Gangry the Podcast. I'm Matt Tullis. For this episode, I spoke with Chris Jones. Jones's third book, The Eye Test, A Case for Human Creativity in the Age of Analytics, was published on January 11th. Jones describes the book as the distillation of everything he has learned from creative people over his journalism career. He says he's trying to make the case that analytics are useful, but they have their limitations. And we're sort of taught that we kind of have to change. We have to adapt to the technology in a weird way. Like, oh, now our lives are different. And we made the technology. We made the algorithm. We made like we don't we can turn off machines. The eye test digs into seven different areas where there are a lot of analytical inputs, but stories of those analytics coming up short. Those areas include entertainment, sports, weather, politics, crime, money, and medicine. Jones says the crime chapter in some ways is his favorite. And I was sort of really intrigued by sort of the evolution of policing. And uh, I think it's fascinating, the whole idea of like junk forensics is interesting, how we sort of fell for years for this like uh, CSI, you know, bite mark analysis and blood spatter analysis and all this stuff that I took to be genuine science. Um, and then you, you have journalists like Pamela Koloff, who's amazing, who's like, who's tearing these walls, you know, tearing this sort of construct down. Jones has been on the podcast twice before. For the 17th episode, I talked with him way back in January of 2014. At the time, we talked about his Kenneth Feinberg profile that ran in Esquire, as well as his 50th anniversary story on the JFK assassination. In April 2020, when the pandemic was just getting started, I released an interview we had done several months earlier. At that time, we had talked about the different types of writing Chris had been doing since leaving Esquire. Jones was a longtime reporter for Esquire, where he won a National Magazine Award in 2009 for The Things That Carried Him. He was more recently a writer and producer on the Netflix series Away. He's also still currently writing for various magazines. As usual, 
I've linked to everything that we talk about on the website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Chris, welcome to Gangry the Podcast. So happy to see you again, Matt. Thank you for having me. I, I was going to say we were talking a little bit before that that I don't know that we've ever actually seen each other while we were talking uh, for this show because you were on episode 17 <laughs> way back, uh, I think would have been 2013 or early 2014. Holy cats. When I still feel like I had no clue what I was doing. Um, not saying that I do now, but just possibly. Yeah, I uh, have a big fancy mic now, at least. Yeah, yeah. And I think we talked on the phone at that point in time, I think, or maybe we did Skype. I could be wrong. Anyways, uh, and, then I, and then you were on another episode later, but that was a time we just talked on the phone. Um, and then I had that recording and I was like, I want to use this because uh, it was it was so much good, great stuff about just how writing your how your writing has changed, um, which I think is something that you see in in the eye test, uh, a case for human creativity in the age of analytics went on sale on January 11th, I believe. That's um, true. Can you uh, tell me about the book? Well, it's uh, got a green cover. It's got uh, 200 and I believe 88 pages inside. Um, there's a mistake on page 66. There's a missing as. Uh, no, it's um, it is a book. I don't know how to describe it, buddy. It's like a it's a distillation of everything I've learned from creative people over my journalism career. I would say, and it's sort of. Um, I guess I would describe it as uh, it's not, I think some people call it like anti moneyball. It's not anti moneyball. It's moneyball with addenda the stuff we've learned since 2003. And it's, and it's, I think it's sort of, I'm trying to make a case that analytics are useful, but they have their limitations. And when we run into those limitations, we need to rely on good, smart, experienced people. Um, so I, I would, rather than anti-money ball, I prefer to think of the book as pro-human, pro-smart people, which is such a risky, I know I'm really going out on a limb there. I like smart people. That's the book. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it was fascinating to read. And I, I was talking with my brother about it. Uh, my brother is a data scientist uh, no shit. in Pittsburgh. Oh, so he's, he's mad at me. And he's not actually, because uh, okay, we were talking about, um, and, and I think he sees the issues, right? Uh, the way algorithms are often used. Um, and he, he, we were talking on the phone. He actually bought the book while we were talking on the phone and he doesn't Thank buy a lot of books. So <laughs> anyways, great. uh, well, but, uh, yeah, no, I think, I, I think it, that's, that's one of the things that I, I like about it so much as it takes this, it, it forces us to step back from this idea that, um, uh, algorithms are going to save us and just like order life uh, as it should be. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I want to hit pause because I think what happens sometimes is like, especially with technology, it sort of comes out and we're sort of taught that we kind of have to change. We have to adapt to the technology in a weird way. Like, oh, now our lives are different. And we made the technology. We made the algorithm. We made like, we don't, we can turn off machines. Like it's, it's a weird, we wouldn't, like if a new chainsaw came out, we wouldn't be like, well, this changes my life. Like, and now I have to adapt to this. Like we wouldn't do that. Uh, but with the, all the technology we use now is like, well, you're, you're, you're out of touch. If you don't use it, you're at, you know, and I think a lot of people, 
I think we've reached a point where a lot of people sort of understand that something like the smartphone in your pocket is probably doing a little damage to you or how much time we spend online is probably doing a little harm to, to the rest of our lives. And that's, that's what the book is for me is, is sort of um, sober second thought. Just a, let's take a minute. Let's take a minute. We're on a path. Is this the path that we want to be on? Did you, um, you know, as, as you were doing the reporting, did it, did it make you stop and think about how much time maybe that you spend, uh, online on a screen, um, on a phone, that type of, th that type of stuff? I mean, I've been paralyzed by that question for quite a while. I, I I'm lucky in that I don't, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, he's quite tied into his phone and I'm not like, I don't text very much. I don't have any apps on my phone. Um, I would quite happily have a flip phone, except like my favorite phone ever was my um, my Razor, my Motorola Razor, uh, which you could throw through a window and it would be totally intact. Um, the reason I have a smartphone is basically for maps. I find it useful for that. Uh, so I'm not super tied in. I do spend a, a little too much time probably online. And the problem is, as you know, you know, when you're writing, is it's pretty easy just to go, oh, what's going on Twitter? You know, you're, and you, pop over there for a second and then you get sucked into something. YouTube is another one of my big rabbit holes. I'll just go down a path there. Um, so I'm mindful of it for sure. I, I would say I'm not as, as uh, sucked in as a lot of people I know. Um, and I'm definitely that jerk at a party who slaps phones out of people's hands. I am that guy. How did the book come about? You know, it was a funny sort of process where a publisher contacted my agent and said, you know, I, the, the, my publisher, Sean Desmond at 12, had this the same sort of like weird feeling in his stomach that things were kind of going wrong. Uh, and he asked my agent whether I'd be into taking a run at it. He had seen a story I'd written in the New York Times magazine that's also in the book about Justin Gershley, a baseball manager, and sort of the limits in, in baseball of, of statistics. Um, a baseball manager is sort of an interesting, uh, unquantifiable uh, person who's really important in baseball, but who it's hard to measure through statistics how good they are as a manager. It's just a tough. And so the, the story in the Times sort of was like, um, isn't it interesting that in the sport that is most dominated by analytics, one of the critical positions is basically unquantifiable. So he saw that and he thought, oh, well, maybe that. And then um, and then I, I thought uh, it was something I'd been thinking about, too. Um, and I kind of thought, well, if, if he's been thinking about it and I've been thinking about it, maybe other people are thinking about this as well. And that's that was sort of the genesis of the book. I know uh, within the book, uh, sports is one of the chapters uh, you look at. You look at. Um, six, six different areas, I think, um, entertainment, uh, seven. seven, seven different areas. Entertainment, sports, weather, politics, crime, money, and medicine. And, and clearly, I can't count, which is why I came up with six. That's why you like uh, the book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But, uh, I, I'm curious, you know, as I was reading the book, uh, how, how did you come up with those areas to focus on? Um, they just seem to be areas that, uh, that had both a lot of sort of analytical inputs and stories of where they were coming short. Um, in entertainment, for instance, I'd written a story about a guy named Ryan Kavanaugh who claimed to have moneyballed uh, the taste of movie audiences that he would never make a, a bomb. And of course, he lost billions of dollars because 
there is no such thing as money balling taste. Um, and then it, it sort of escalates from there. And I ordered the chapters, you know, it starts with entertainment, which is sort of a frivolous, in the scheme of things, I love entertainment, but in the scheme of things, a relatively frivolous aspect of our life and sort of escalates to more and more important topics and ending with basically life and death decisions that happen in hospitals. Um, and so, so that those were why I picked those areas. It's, it's funny, after the book came out, uh, someone said, you know, you should have done a chapter on gambling. And I was like, I really should have, I really should have. And that's the, the pain of a book is uh, you will constantly see things and hear things where you're like, wow, I really should have included that in the book. So I wish I'd had chapter, I would say I would have put it three gambling. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's the reason I picked those topics. I, I would say there is some gambling that does show up in the book as well, right? It's uh, in there, but like gambling is an interesting, because uh, there are, you know, inveterate gamblers who use models uh, to some success. Um, but there are still those guys who are kind of hunky, you know, just feel that someone's going to win or not win. And, 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 and it goes back to this idea, like if everyone's using the same information, like what's the advantage? That's the, that happened with the A's, right? Like as soon as the secret came out, the money, as soon as Moneyball came out and every team started having huge analytics departments, the Giants came back again. Not the San Francisco Giants, like the Giants of baseball. You know, it became the Yankees and Red Sox again because the, the advantage was gone. And so for me, and gambling is sort of interesting in the sense that, you know, you can see it in poker where there are players who are extremely mathematical who are you know, who are playing not even their cards, they're just playing the odds. Uh, but then you still have those players who are readers, who have that sort of sixth sense about what people have. Uh, and I thought it, in hindsight, it would have been interesting to explore that. Um, do you have a favorite section or a favorite chapter, an area that you enjoyed really digging into the most? You know, I, I, um, I kind of like the crime section. It's uh, it's not a topic I covered a lot as a journalist. Um, and I was sort of really intrigued by sort of the evolution of policing. And uh, I think it's fascinating, the whole idea of like junk forensics is interesting, how we sort of fell for years for this like uh, CSI, you know, bite mark analysis and blood spatter analysis and all this stuff that I took to be genuine science. Um, then you, you have journalists like Pamela Coloff, who's amazing, who's like, who's tearing these walls, you know, tearing this sort of construct down. And most of it is crap. Like the, the, the vast majority of it is absolute garbage. And it's, and it's for me, that sort of idea that the, the crime chapter in a way is a metaphor for the whole book where like analytics got some things very right and then got a little egotistical about what it was capable of. Um, and the same thing happened in criminology where, you know, mug shots and fingerprint analysis and things like that were real developments. And then you get things like bite mark analysis that's sort of like on the tail of real science and that seems accepted. And then, and then you realize later it's, it's actually a bunch of gobbledygook. And that, that's the same thing that's happened in analytics as a whole. So crime for me was sort of interesting. It's, I, I feel a little bad about that chapter. In fact, I have a footnote before the end of it where I go, you know, you don't have to keep reading this because it's dark. Um, because I want the book to be hopeful. I want people to finish the book and feel good about the world. Uh, so that chapter is like a bit of an anomaly in that sense, but, uh, I gotta say it was the chapter I sort of most enjoyed researching. I didn't know a lot about that field. So 
Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Pam Koloff because I was also going to mention her because uh, we talked on this show uh, about her uh, Blood Will Tell uh, piece mm-hmm. uh, that ran several years ago. And now she's working on a book that's going to be digging into the whole, uh, I think, jailhouse. Uh, um, the snitches. The snitches, yeah. And so I keep, <laughs> she's, uh, she's awesome. I keep I keep waiting for the, the day that I can advance order that book. So we'll yeah, see. Yeah, it's going to be fantastic. She's like... You know, there are journalists where you're going to go, I don't know about you, but sometimes there are certain journalists that give me like major imposter syndrome. Pam's one of them where I go, oh, that's that's what a real journalist looks like. That's what a real journalist does. I'll go watch my soccer game. <laughs> it's like, she's awesome. I'm going to say that every single person I talk to on the podcast gives me that feeling, so, <laughs> which is why I do the podcast. So That's great. Just to, <laughs> just to suffer. Right, this podcast right. is just about you suffering. Yeah, yeah. How reporting wise, um, how how was the, it different from uh, the type of work that you did back when you were writing for Esquire? Well, it was sort of, in a way, the reporting was poorly timed because I wrote the bulk of this book during the pandemic, uh, and I had big plans on going to all sorts of places, um, and I just couldn't. I wasn't allowed. Uh, so it sort of forced me to do a lot more literature review and interviews online, which are not my favorite. Um, it was just, it, it, it was a different kind of reporting with Esquire. We always emphasize going, you gotta go and sit in the room. And, um, and I rely on a lot of my Esquire, you know, just, I have this sort of collection of people I've met that I was like, well, I can pretend I didn't meet any of these people and not include them in the book, but so often when I was writing a book, I'd be like, oh, this reminds me of so-and-so who I knew. And, and, and a lot of people I've kept in touch with or re-reported on. So it's not a complete regurgitation, but um, sometimes people would pop up in my head who I knew already. And then other times I just needed to talk to other people and I did it remotely. I wish I could have gone on the road more. I mean, a big part of my, the joy of writing for me is the reporting for me. And a huge part of it is just meeting awesome people and, and traveling, to be honest, like just going on the road. Uh, and so I missed that with this book. I didn't get to do a lot of that with this book. But people were very amenable to talking on Zoom and things like that. Like I think a lot of people are used to it now. It's just it's not as good, I don't think. But it's it's a in the circumstances, it was a it was an okay substitute. So I'm assuming you had the the book contract before the pandemic mm. hit. Yeah, but it was it wasn't. I hadn't really started the reporting until the pandemic. And then it was like, and then I don't know about you, it was sort of March, 2020. We went into lockdown in Canada and Ontario and I was like, oh, this will be six weeks. Then we'll just get back to life. And, and of course that didn't happen. And, and being in Canada was actually a a limitation in some weird way because uh, we couldn't go go over the border. Uh, So that really limited things. You know, there's, there's people I would have loved to have gone to see. Peter Good, who I interviewed remotely, unfortunately, um, is one of my, uh, he doesn't know this about um, our relationship. He's one of my idols. Uh, he designed the Hartford Whalers logo, yeah. which is one of my favorite things of all time. And we had to talk remotely. And I was sort of crushed that I couldn't go to a studio and see him work. That's the kind of thing that you miss out on by not reporting on the ground. You, you said you had to do a lot of literature review. Um... And, and Which then, I didn't normally do with Esquire. That's that's what I was going to ask. And, and no, so how... We would never, you know, because you didn't want to cite other people. Right. Like you wanted all the reporting to be original. 
But that, well, that's, that, it was new to me. Actually, you remind me of a university, like, which is how you write a university paper. And so, you know, because this book, because I was in lockdown and there is a lot of information out there, you know, it's not like I'm covering a massive amount of new ground here. Like people write about this stuff. Um, you know, I ended up citing other people, which is not something I've ever really done. Uh, I tried to be really fastidious about it. Like, you know, I have footnotes on the page. Um, you know, I was, I was terrified of like committing some kind of weird, um, I don't know what you call that, uh, attribution sin, because uh, it's not something I normally do. I, you know, I tried to give all sorts of credit. This is not me. This is, um, but it, it was it was different for me to, that's a different kind of writing for me. But I also enjoyed it. I love, you know, I'm a reader and I think like a lot of people during the pandemic, I read a ton and it was really handy to have a lot of wonderful source material uh, to work with. I, I was I, because you're working with that type of information. You you got to organize it a little bit differently as well, right? And and how how did you go about that? Because hundreds or more than hundreds of 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 things that you read, right? And you got to like yeah. find a way to organize it all. So when you are sitting down to write, you can find what you're looking for, right? You can find what you're so the way I've always written, and I did it for the book too is when I have something, I write it. And then later, I piece it all together. So it's not super efficient, because sometimes you write stuff that you don't end up using. Um, but if I if I read a book or an article that really got me jazzed, uh, and I knew it was going to be a paragraph or a few paragraphs, but I would write those. And then, you know, I would footnote. Actually, Pam said this is, is, is really important to cite as you go along. If you have to go back and do the footnotes, that's both a huge job and a real chance for error. So every time I had a source, I would footnote as I was writing the, the thing. Um, and that's how I organize. It's, 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 you know, I obviously have a stack of books and papers and articles, but I also just, I would write as I went. I didn't, I'm not the kind of writer who starts at the beginning and then just writes to the end. And I wasn't like that as a magazine writer. I didn't write the book that way. Um, and I don't know if it's the right way to do it. I wouldn't, I would never say that's the right way to do it. Um, but it's the way I do it. And uh, I did it again here. So, you know, for instance, there's a, there's a long paragraph in the crime section. That's like the history of fingerprint uh, use. And I would say that paragraph has probably six or seven sources. I would just, I'd write the sentence I knew I wanted and I'd sort, I'd cite it. I'd write a sentence, cite it. Like it was just a building, like Lego, like just a brick at a time is how I approached it. Um, and hopefully it worked. Did you talk to anyone who had helped you through this type of, type of new type of reporting? No, I mean, I, I sort of looked online. Like I say, Pam, I think she'd said it on Twitter or a podcast. She said something about how important it is to keep track of your citations. Um, and to, and to source as you go along so that you don't lose them. Uh, and I took that to heart. I got very anal about the footnotes. Um, and, uh, and otherwise, I guess, relied on sort of, in a weird way, that it took me back to grad school. Uh, you know, I got a master's degree in urban planning for no good reason um, and learned how to do academic writing then. And the book is not academic at all, but it's that sort of same, back then you would go, I'm old enough, Matt, that I would go, you know, get the Dewey Decimal cards out of the little drawers and go get my 10 books and then, you know, um, 
so basically it was it was actually the first time i've actually used that degree it was nice nice not for any not for any actual city building but in terms of <laughs> knowing how to cite sources and things like that you you mentioned several pieces uh throughout the different chapters um about several pieces uh, about pieces that you've written uh in the past for esquire um one of them that comes up uh is the kenneth feinberg profile yeah. Um, which we talked about we way talked back, about way back when, uh, episode 17, um, other stories include the teller profile, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, the piece on Terry nice. Did I say that right or no? Uh, niece, niece, uh, the, the, the price is right. Um, uh, fame or infamy or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Um, how yeah you've written so much right throughout your career how did those end up being the ones that uh, maybe have stuck with you uh and you wanted to use uh in the book it was very it was as i was working on something i would kind of remember somebody um and i would remember specific i think sometimes i look back in my career and wonder if it was an accident or part of a grand plan that i didn't know i had where I happened to talk, the bulk of my career was spent talking to people I wanted to meet who were doing something cool, usually based on like some deep passion of theirs. It was just, it, it, I was drawn to people who love something and I was drawn to people particularly who love something a little weird. Um, and so someone like Teller and his love of magic, how he made a trick, you know, when I was working on the entertainment section, I was really thinking about movies and TV because that was the business I was, I'm doing now. And so that was sort of the forefront of my, of my mind. And then I remembered watching Teller work on a trick and I was like, oh, that's a testament to one person just putting a lot of time into something, which is something I'm a big believer in. Oh, maybe that can go here. So it wasn't like a mindful... It was just people would pop into my head. Um, and with a career like mine at Esquire, you know, I've been so lucky to meet so many interesting people. And I had this real sort of question about whether I should include that stuff in the book. So, you know, if people have followed my career, they know they know Ken Feinberg, they know those people. But for people who haven't followed my career, you know, those are people they should get to know. And and also I was like, it, it, it seemed artificial to me to just pretend I hadn't met all those people. Like it, it's in a weird way, my career is a kind of a version of what I'm prescribing the eye test, which is just spending a lot of time until you have sort of a deep understanding of something. Well, my career gave me a pretty deep understanding of how creative people work. So it'd be weird not to, so I cite all the stories. I cite myself, which felt very weird. Um, but I, I thought it was important to be upfront, like, you know, I've, I've written about this person before. I love this person. I have a relationship with this person. Um, but it, that's, it wasn't any, like, I, it didn't map it out. I would work on the section. I'd be like, oh, I can Feinberg. I still remember him yelling in that. He, there's a scene where he was yelling in a Harvard classroom about how we want, we don't just want statistics. We want human beings. And I was like, oh my God, that's the, that fits here. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of, it was just sort of these people would surface. And they're memorable people. You don't forget the time you hung out with Tyler watching him develop a magic trick. You know, you don't forget when you watch Ken Feinberg teaching a law class. Like you, 
Like I can hear his voice in my chest. So those, those things just very naturally found their way into the book. I felt like. Yeah. I, I think I have to mention, cause you talk about having to cite yourself. Uh, I wrote a piece for the international association of literary journalism studies about the podcast itself. And of course I'm quoting amazing things people have said on the podcast, which means I'm then footnoting my, my Your own podcast, in my own it podcast, felt, which is very, like a, very strange. It felt like a really weird version of masturbating. And I put in the, I put in the, I put it, I think I put it in a note to readers. I kind of go, listen, I'm doing this because I feel like I should, <laughs> but I feel very weird about it. Yeah. Like, uh, I try to keep the book sort of conversational and, and I try to admit when I don't know things and I try to admit when I'm feel awkward and in real life. And so in the book, there's lines where I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. So I think twice, actually, I also put it in the first footnote where I cite myself where I go, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm sorry. And I feel weird, but yeah, I feel like I need to say when I've written about someone before. We're going to take a short break. In one minute, I'll return with more from Chris Jones, the author of The Eye Test, a case for human creativity in the age of analytics. This is Gangry the Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is brought to you by the Digital Journalism and Sports Media Programs at Fairfield University. Digital Journalism is designed to provide students with the skills, knowledge, and experience needed to succeed in today's quickly changing media world. Students take courses in everything from big data storytelling to podcasting to narrative journalism and more. Sports media is a new major that prepares students to work anywhere sports-related content is produced. Students take courses in journalism and broadcast communication. They can also take courses in public relations, film, and more. To learn more about the digital journalism and sports media programs, visit www.fairfield.edu. Welcome back to Gangry the Podcast. I'm talking with Chris Jones, the author of The Eye Test, A Case for Human Creativity in the Age of Analytics. This is your second book. Uh, your first book was Too Far From Home, which I think was retitled Out of Orbit in paperback. Mm-hmm. Um, it, that came out in 2007. And I think I remember you telling me at one point in time, I may be wrong, but I th- I'm almost sure positive that at one point in time, you told me you were never going to write a book again. Uh, well, is that accurate? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a slight correction. Uh, I wrote a previous book. Now it's totally fine that you don't know about it because this is true. It sold 912 copies. Uh, it was called falling hard, a rookie's year in boxing. It was about my first year as a sports writer covering boxing. It is not good. I wrote it when I was 24. Uh, it is, uh, I get sweaty when I think about it. Um, I have tried to find those 912 copies. I think I have about I think I've recollected about 907 of them for burning. There's like five out there somewhere <laughs> that I hope no one ever discovers. That makes them that was, more valuable though. Oh yeah. Yeah. Real <laughs> valuable. Uh, that, so that was my first book experience. Then too far from home came out, worked really hard on it. Um, and it did okay. But one of the, you know, got option for film. I actually made quite a lot of money for that book in a weird way. Um, sorry. I'm thinking out loud. Uh, <laughs> But what I kind of came to is that 
there is no way for a book to give you what you need from it, given the work that you put into it. Like it, it's, it's, I was at that time, I was like, God, it's a hundred thousand words. Like, what does that have to do for you to feel like it was worth it? And the problem at the time was I was thinking about uh, external rewards. I was thinking about external validation. I was thinking about money. I was thinking about praise. I was thinking about numbers, readers, how many sales you have. And, and I think that was my mistake. I think if you write a book because you feel like, because you enjoy the process, then that stuff sort of falls away a little bit. It's not completely gone because obviously if a book doesn't sell, then you don't get to write another one, which is, you know, I would like to do this again. Uh, I absolutely would have said that after this Facebook because I was feeling very, the New York Times ran a very critical review of it. Um, that also had a massive mistake in it. Like Too Far From Home was about the Columbia disaster. And the New York Times review kept talking about Challenger. Like it was clear that the person hadn't read the book and it was like, and I was just, I was like, man, like I worked for years on that thing. And then someone comes along and does that and it's over. That sucks. Like, you know, it had the lifespan of one of my magazine stories, which obviously take a lot less time. So that's where I was at at the time when we, when we had that conversation. But with the eye test, particularly during the pandemic, when I couldn't do my regular on the road reporting, it was a real joy to work on. I really liked writing it. And I hope people like it. I hope it sells well. I, I hope I get to do it again, but if not, I enjoyed the writing of it enough that I got what I needed out of it. It was just a, it was a shift in perspective. If you, if you know what it is, is if you write a book just for the money or just because you feel like you should write a book, you have this internal thing where you're like, well, I need to write a book. You're going to be disappointed by how it comes out. Unless it's a massive bestseller, that's the only way you'll feel good about it. But if you write a book because you really want to, because you feel like it's worth putting these words on paper and you enjoy the research and you enjoy the writing, then you got what you, then you got what you needed. It's, it's a, it's a funny, it's a good, it's a good, like, I would like to, you know, I would not say that to you. I would like to write a book, another book immediately. Like I, I'm, the response to the eye test has been very kind, but like, it's, it's, um, it's more that I just, I, it got me through the pandemic. It was like a nice, it was a nice thing for me to work on. You, uh, you told me back in 2012 when we were, uh, doing the creative nonfiction magazine virtual roundtable, And, uh, in many ways that was, that was the genesis for the podcast, right? I mean, because, uh, we were emailing back and forth and we was, uh, you Ben Montgomery Tom Lake and myself, and I was emailing you all questions and you were responding. And then I threw it all together in like a, uh, an enhanced Q and a, and, um, you said to response to one of my questions and, and I wish I had written down what the question was. Uh, but you said that you have no imagination and that you need facts to launch from. And, you know, I was reading the eye test and, and I thought it was a very imaginative book. Right. And, uh, Away, which was the Netflix series, which should have gotten a second season, at least, uh, was also incredibly imaginative. And obviously, 10 years has passed, right? Uh, what What's changed and how has your writing evolved <laughs> because of that? That's an easy, easy question right there. Yeah, I mean, I still, 
I'm glad it was that quote because I would have I would have talked all sorts of nonsense from 2012 about all sorts of I I would probably regret just about everything I've said. Um, you know, when I leave a party, Matt, I I say I apologize for everything. That's my that's how I leave a party. Apologize for everything I said and did. Uh, I'm sorry for everything, and that's how I feel about every interview I've ever given. I'm like I'm sorry I said that. Um, <laughs> I still don't have a pure imagination in the sense that I could never write a novel. It's not in me. I just don't have that kind of brain. And I know a lot of novelists write their fiction based on some fact or some story of their life, or I get that. I would just run out of strength. I just, I don't, I just don't have it. Um, the book, what I what I like about the book in terms of its imagination is I I would I really tried hard to sort of find unexpected sources. You know, like in in sports, I start talking about astrophysics. You know, I, I talk about my son Charlie and his autism. I, I tried to find sort of unusual tangents. Um, that still fit. So I guess there, the book has some imagination, but it's like an imagination of structure, I think maybe if it has that. Um, but, I, but it's all fact-based, do you know what I mean? And Away, Away was also sort of based on a true story and there was seven other people in the room creating that show. I couldn't have done it by myself. There was all sorts of things in there that I, there are vast swaths of that, that show that I had nothing to do with and couldn't have had anything to do with because I don't have that kind of brain. Um, you know, when it came to like space drama, well, I got that because I've done a bunch of research about space and I can go, oh, maybe this happens or maybe this happens. The TV is written is such a collaborative medium that I could never take credit for. I can take credit for 1% of that show. Like it's, it's a, it had very little to do with me really. Um, so I get what you're saying. I still stand by the fact that I don't have like a pure imagination where I could just like, I'm not someone who daydreams flights of fancy or anything like that. I just don't have that brain. I need facts to start. I can sometimes see why a story, I can sometimes see why a real person matters. I have that kind of imagination where I kind of go, oh, you're this, but you're really about this. You have something to teach me about that. I think I'm pretty good at that. at seeing like the theme. Um, but in terms of like raw imagination, I don't have that. And I don't, I don't know how you develop that. I don't know how people, I think it's just different brains. I think I, I think I know exactly where you're coming from because I, I think I have this similar brain because there are times when I'm out running and I think I had an idea for a great short story mm-hmm. <laughs> and I get a page in and I was like, yeah, this sucks. I'm not going any further. Uh, Cause I, I run out of, I don't know what else is happening. I don't know what else happens next. And I would need someone to go, I would need to see it. And I'd be like, oh, that's what happens next. Oh, I can write about that because that's how my brain, I have probably 33 page novels on my, where I start. And I just, I just don't just, I don't have it. I don't have it. I envy people who do. I used to call novelists really accomplished liars and that's not nice. Um, But that's, but it's, it's that brain where you can just spin pure fiction i don't know how it's like songwriting to me which is another sort of very mysterious that's like witchcraft i don't i don't know where the songs <laughs> come from and uh, i don't have that either 
so I guess I think it's important sometimes to acknowledge like, well, I don't have that. And, and, and that is just something there is no interview. We will talk again when we're 80. I will not have written a novel. I guarantee it. Yeah. I'm going to mark that down. Do and it. I don't know how a podcast will look in 35 years, 30, 30. I don't know. I, I don't even want to count how many years until I don't do that math. No. <laughs> not a good idea, but so, no, I, I am positive. Enough. Yeah. One other thing you told me uh, during that oh, interview, uh, <laughs> it was that you rarely, uh, if ever write in the first person. Um, this book is very much uh, first person. And as you even mentioned, you, you write about Charlie as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was, what was that like? for you and and have you been doing more of that since since uh the esquire esquire days have gone I, it would it would not be my default writing in the first person would never be my default i think what you i think the sort of benchmark for writing in the first person is whether you appearing in the story really adds something to it uh, i think often writers rely on the first person just as an easy structural solution to problems. And I would rather work out those problems in a different way. Um, like sometimes it's sort of lazy and unnecessary. And there, you know, there are a couple of writers I can think, I won't name them, but where I'm like, they appear in every story. And I'm like, I don't, you're not that interesting. I don't, I want, I want to know about the person you're with. I don't care about your foibles. Like it's, uh, uh, that's still my instinct in the book. There was just, times when i couldn't really get around it like writing about charlie you have to say i have to say he's my son but now i'm in the book and it's just uh or if i um i didn't want to have that awkward you know the reporter sees something a report you know i didn't want that sort of which is its own kind of awkwardness um so in the book it felt where it felt natural and where i felt like i was adding i show up and then i disappear for long stretches and but the book is definitely very sort of breezy, chatty. Like it, I kind of wanted it to feel like just having a conversation at a bar and these are the stories and um, hopefully that comes across. Writing about Charlie is sort of, I've read about Charlie a lot uh, um, just because he's, well, he's always in my mind. And so he shows up a lot. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's not my default, I wouldn't say. I think one other thing that we learn in the book uh, is maybe this is the first time, maybe not the name of your very real girlfriend <laughs> that you mention on Twitter quite often. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, yeah. Yeah. That's her. Is that the, yeah. bra- that, 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 that I th- feel like that should be the breaking news of, uh, of, <laughs> of the podcast. I, well, you I, still have no proof of her existence. <laughs> well, that's in- I could have just made up the name. <laughs> it's entirely possible. It's um, amazing how many people I've received so many DMS from people who who believe I don't have a girlfriend <laughs> who thinks she's made up and I'm like this is incredible I think you got to keep that going oh well that's why I think people who are like new followers Matt and I are talking about my Twitter feed incidentally for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about um where my very real girlfriend is a character I say it in all cap I've shortened it to my VRG uh and I'm sure new followers are like what the hell is he talking about but it's a long-standing joke where I I don't have a girlfriend. I do have a girlfriend. Or do I? <laughs> I will tell you that every single person who listens to this podcast probably follows you on Twitter already. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Twitter has been a delight for me. Twitter is like my, um, God, I love Twitter. Yeah. There are actually times in the book where you mention uh, tweets. 
He's super useful. Yeah. I mean, one of the genesis, one of the reasons the book came about was I asked Jason Isbell about songwriting and he gave this like lovely response. And I was like, well, that's super interesting. And it, and, and one of the cool things about Twitter is you have this like weird accessibility to famous people. Uh, that's, and if you ask them questions about craft or process, they will often answer. Uh, Brian Kaufman does this all the time with screenwriting. Like he'll, he'll literally do like hour long Q and a sessions. Like it, it, it's wonderful in terms of like picking the brains of people you admire It's fantastic. And then if you do it the right way, I did Twitter wrong for years. If you do it the right way, you, you can cultivate like a lovely little community. It's like, uh, it's really nice. Yeah. I love Twitter. I'll ask you to give me lessons on Twitter at some point in time because I don't, don't like with how I use it. I know I, I, I kind of pulled that back a couple years ago because it was pointless. It's pointless. It is completely pointless. And it took me, years to figure it out it's not only pointless it hurts you it makes you feel bad and it's like why why am i doing this uh and then and then and the opposite is true though like it can make you feel good like i routinely laugh from it i routinely get sort of joy from it it's um it's just about how you it's like any of these machines like this is in the book it's, it's like you know a rocket when we were working on, on a way i remember we were pitching it and one of the lines we used uh was that a rocket is a missile with people on top we've just chosen to send them to space rather than a bomb to afghanistan like it's the same tool uh for vastly different purposes and twitter in a weird way is like that you can use it to to as an anger machine or you can use it as a joy machine and and i don't know why you would ever choose to use it as an anger machine. i did i did do it uh, but now I look back and I go, what the hell was I thinking? It's like, a, yeah. What are you, uh, is there anything you're working on that you can talk about? I am doing a piece for golf digest at the moment, trying to keep my hand into the magazine world, which I, um, miss. Um, uh, I, I think magazine writing is sort of my, um, I'll say this, this sounds vain, but I think it's my truest sort of where I belong. So where it's the pocket I fit in, I think, is magazine journalism. But I've missed it. Uh, so Max Adler at Golf Digest was kind enough to ask if I wanted to write a piece. And I said, yes, please. Um, and I am doing a lot of screenwriting. So I'm uh, working on a feature script based on a true story, a hostage story from the 70s uh, that I'll keep secret. And, um, and then I'm writing a pitch for a TV show. So that is a, in screenwriting terms, that is a real shot in the dark, but um, all TV shows start with someone writing on their computer with a little pitch document. So that's what I'm doing now. Also based, also of course, based on a true story. Yes, of course. Of course. Well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, the eye test, a case for human creativity in the age of analytics is available now. I'll put links to it on the website. Thank you, buddy. And thanks for selling, selling one to your brother. Yeah. I, I, I'm not even going to ask for commission. So no, no. Well, good. Cause I, I get just enough commission for me. So <laughs> it's uh, I really appreciate it. It's always nice talking to you. I, I feel like we should do this every five or six years. You can quote things back to me. I'll correct everything I've done. And by the time we're old men, we'll be truly enlightened. Uh, we'll have reached some kind of like oracle on the mountain status. It'll be lovely. That's a pretty fantastic idea. So anyways, thanks, Chris. All right. Thanks, Matt.
that was Chris Jones. Jones was a longtime reporter for Esquire, where he won a National Magazine Award. He was a writer and producer on the Netflix series Away. Now he is the author of The Eye Test, a case for human creativity in the age of analytics. The book was released on January 11th. As usual, I've linked to a lot of what we talked about on the website. You can find that at www.gangrythepodcast.com. Stay up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter. That's at Gangry Podcast. Gangry is spelled G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. You can subscribe to Gangry the Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any Google Play app. Just search Gangry. That's G-A-N-G-R-E-Y. Podcast. Gangry the Podcast is produced in the Integrated Media Labs at Fairfield University. It's made possible by the digital journalism and sports media programs, as well as the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield U. This episode was hosted and produced by yours truly. I'm Matt Tullis. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.